So if you've been uh, with us, you know that we've been on this pursuit of what is the character of God, and we've been slowing it down like big time, and we're gleaning a lot of the revelation from a guy named Darren Hufford. He wrote this book called The God's Honest Truth. Totally recommend it. And what it did was it totally changed my paradigm of how I, I saw God and how I understood his heart. And if, um, if, if you have a lie somewhere in your life and you don't root it out, it becomes the foundation for all their truth. And what happens is that you have a lie and then you, you live life and you build other truths on top of it. If that core lie at the bottom starts to shake, then everything else starts to move. And what I found is that there were a lot of things in my belief system that I picked up from well-intended people, from great professors, from God-fearing people that just weren't true. And things that sounded holy and things that sounded, oh, that sounds like it's in the Bible, they just weren't there. And, and so what we've been on a journey on for the past, gosh, six months probably now, four months, and we're almost done, is to go through the attributes of God through 1 Corinthians because God is love, as we know from 1 John 4, 8, and so as we get the characteristics of love, we can actually understand his nature, his character. And 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily provoked, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. And so we're nearing the end, and so if you've missed any of those, I totally encourage you guys to check it out. Online, we have all of our teachings there. They're killer, but tonight is love always trusts. And this is a really hard one because a lot of us tonight are gonna have a whole new definition of trust when we leave here. And we have time, we're gonna go through love hopes. But trust, we all kind of know it is that we hear like love always trusts, and so we get all these perceptions of our mind and we actually get a whole lot of guilt when it comes to trusting people that don't deserve trust. And then we feel like all conflicted and there's a story of a, a, an individual who came through the ministry and, and they had a lot of challenges and, and there's some individuals that opened up their home to this individual. And so they thought, you know, what's mine is yours and it's totally, totally honoring. But there's a lot of red flags and so what happened is that person while they're staying with them stole from them. And so then they kind of reconciled and did confrontation and all these, you know, things kind of get it better and then a few more weeks later and they stole from them again and, and just the cycle kept on happening. And it illustrates like our challenges because when we hear trust, we also think that that means I must be taken advantage of. And the, as the Bible instructs trust, I think that we all would agree that, you know, love always trusts and everybody feels that love should trust, but it really isn't that simple. And let me break down for you how kind of trust works you know, in today's kind of mindset and thinking for the majority of people, you usually have people that are over-trusting and they get taken advantage of all the time. And then you have other people that are on the opposite extreme. And it kind of goes like this, is that most people start out with zero trust today in our lives. Most people start out like, you don't have any trust with me. You have to earn your trust. And whatever trust you develop from this point on kind of goes into your trust account, your bank account, you know, whatever it is, like our relationship credibility. And once it's earned, that person is suddenly trustworthy. But if they do something wrong, what happens is that that person goes completely back to zero. And it turns out to be a losing game because the person who's giving trust in that scenario, subconsciously, they're always looking for a reason to take it back. And that's the tricky thing with trust is that people are so afraid of being betrayed. And so what we do is we, we portion out these little morsels of trust and the moment something doesn't happen right and it, it gets you know, sideways, like they kind of freak out. Have you ever had someone that's like, you know, you, you brought them coffee, you know, and they're like, 
I asked for sugar in the raw, not the Splenda crap. You know, how can I ever trust you again? You're like, really? You know? Have you ever met somebody that, like, they'll take any instance and they'll blow it out of proportion and then they'll, they'll draw this, like, massive conclusion. Well, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. You're like, what happened in your life to where you need to make this about trust? Like, it doesn't even compute, but it happens all the time. And eventually we realize this, the cards are stacked against us and then we become bitter in our trust too. We kind of learn that behavior. And then there's people that, you know, when they go through that, they give up trust altogether, right? And they'll proclaim it. Like, I've lost all, I've lost all trust in men. I've lost all trust in women, right? And we're like, yes, yeah, amen, sis. You know, we get on that train, right? And we've almost like glorified these people who are like, I will never trust again. And like, you tell them, you know, because we think that it's like this strength now. Oh, they are protecting their heart. They are strong. They have wisdom, right? Not so much. Because when you build the walls around your heart to not let any bad person in, what happens is you never let any good person in either. And so you see people who build up these, these walls and you know, and it's just not like with one person in your life, if they violate your trust, it's not like you like apportion off part of your trust to them that they don't get. Like, you kind of revoke it all. It's kind of like you've either violated trust and so therefore you're not trustworthy in any area. And I think that for many Christians, the same thing goes with trusting God is that we feel that if he's let us down in any area, suddenly every area is now suspicious. If we put all of our things we want in life, and sometimes, you know, I'm going to call us out, right? Like there's events in our life where we put all the chips on the, guard, on the God card, right? And like, God, I know I haven't asked you for much, but I'm going to go all in right now on this one request. <laughs> I've probably done it a hundred times. I know I've only done this a hundred times, but just really just this one, you know. And we kind of do that. We set God up for this all or nothing result of his faithfulness. All or nothing about his trust. And it can be from school to relationships to family and finances. And, and if we don't, if it doesn't happen how we want, something turns off in us. There becomes a layer about us in our hearts that become hardened. And then we begin to question, well, is God really good? What is his plan? And, and so from that lie there, we, we become susceptible for all these permutations of, of God's nature that aren't true. And if, what's fascinating is if you look back in, in Genesis 3 and look at the original sin, the original sin, which this was only pointed out to me this week in, in our Christ life phase two. Love you guys. Um, and no one clapped. And, <laughs> I don't love you guys as much now, no. Is <laughs> I've broken his trust. Yeah. yeah, you've broken my trust now. But if you look back in the original sin, it wasn't like the serpent came and was like, oh, we got these tasty apples. They're like, this tree is so awesome. The skin tastes amazing. The fruit is great and they have no seed. It, he wasn't selling apples, right? He wasn't, he wasn't doing that. The original sin was actually that God cannot be trusted. Because when, he, when the, the serpent said to Eve, it's like, surely you won't die. He questioned the very thing that God said. And so it called God's availability to be trusted, his trust, his faithfulness. Did he really mean what he said into question? And that is where every sin flowed from. And it'd be interesting to know about every sin we have now. Could it be traced back to that we don't trust God again? I'm not saying, I'm just saying that's a message for another day. 
But here's the greatest misunderstanding of trust is that when we hear that we need to trust somebody, our hearts, again, remember we hear we must suspend judgment. We must get taken advantage of. If I don't trust, it means I'm selfish. If I don't trust, it means I don't love. And we get pigeonholed in this and we reduce our love for people based upon specific things and specific instances. And we think that that's what Jesus would do, right? We think, oh yeah, it sounds like something Jesus would say. And, but we, we totally forget that Jesus himself commanded practical wisdom with the kingdom heart. Matthew 10, 16, he says this. He says, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The truth about trust is that trust is about posture of the heart and not about specific things and situations. We confuse it to where trust belongs. It's a matter of the heart. It's a, a, trust is all about the heart. It has very little to do about specific things, specific possessions, instances. And when we have this mindset, we can know that you can be 100% trusting and never get taken advantage of. And the opposite is true, is that you can always get taken advantage of and never actually have trust in others. Eternal God with eternal mindset would not reduce his nature, and it says God always trusts. He would not reduce that to simple matters of the flesh. Because here's the deal about trust is it's a gatekeeper for our hearts. Trust determines whether our heart opens or closes. It's required for us to have love into our heart. We must be able to trust somebody, not because we trust them with our car or our house or something else. It's because we trust them with our heart. That's far more important. That's far more significant than just simply trusting somebody with 20 bucks. Trust determines whether or not our heart becomes open or closed. And there really is no middle ground. It's either one or the other. And, but the world has taught us that trust is either all or nothing. But this isn't true of kingdom trust. This isn't true about God. Kingdom trust clearly defines what calls for wisdom and what causes for trust. It always keeps the doors open to the heart. God didn't design you to make decisions about the world based on trust. He designed you to make decisions with people based on your heart. And trust is what governs whether your heart is open or not. Even like the story of the ten talents, right? I mean, if you guys know the story about these, these three guys that received some money, and, and it wasn't at all about trust. It was all about stewardship. Like, were you wise? Were you a good steward? And so the resulting factors of that were actually about, I can trust you, but there also happens to be a responsibility for our stewardship. And the balance of trust and wisdom is absolutely necessary. This balance makes it perfectly acceptable to deny a former child molester from being the head of a church nursery. When you have this balance, it allows you to in full, have your heart fully open and fully connected to somebody who has a gambling problem and not put them overseeing the whole entire bank. You guys with me? It allows you to not have, the, my little girl, she's 17 months today, you know, she loves to like ride on these little things. We have this little airplane, little thing that can scoot across the, the floor and she loves my keys. And so it'd be like, hey, she can like sit on things, go and give her keys and, you know, maybe I should give her my car to drive. Like it makes no sense. That would be like the worst idea ever. I'd be thrown in jail for that. But we think about that all the time is that we sometimes suspend wisdom and discernment for the sake of trust because we want to feel like we're loving. We want to feel like we're loving and so we act irresponsibly. But God never, ever, ever places trust in opposition to wisdom and discernment. If you learn one thing tonight, you need to learn that. 
that God will never put trust in opposition to wisdom and discernment. Some people suspend wisdom for the sake of trust because they say love always trusts and then they get defrauded and then what they'll do is they'll make it like super spiritual and like, the devil took my money. No, you just were stupid, you know? <laughs> like, don't bring Satan in this. <laughs> You're giving him way too much credit. Like, you don't, he doesn't need, let me get this right. You don't need his help. <laughs> you, know, you did it all by yourself. Like, I'm, I'm sure he's glad he gets the glory for that, but man, you did that all by yourself there. But a bonus of it is that, that a boundary, a boundary in a relationship is one of the most loving things we can do. A boundary in a relationship doesn't mean you don't trust somebody. It means I actually, tr I love you. <laughs> I have relationships in my life that only exist because there are boundaries in them. And a boundary in a, in a relationship sometimes is the most loving thing you can have for that relationship in order to exist. But when we understand that trust is about the heart and God always trusts, we need to know that God himself in our relationship, he will hear our hearts over our mouths. We wonder why can't God be trusted? I prayed the prayer. I spoke the words. What happened to my prayer? And because God always trusts, and the trust is about the heart, we must come to this conclusion that God hears our hearts over our mouths. What, what does that mean? It means that when God is listening to us, he's hearing our hearts before our mouths. You know the scripture, I think it's Matthew, says, you don't even, you know, before you come and even ask, before you open your mouth, he already knows. And what this also means is that God won't overrule what your heart believes just because your mouth said it. God won't overrule what your heart believes just because your mouth said it. We have a habit of praying for things that our hearts actually disagree with. Sometimes now in, in prayer ministry, like, you know, you'll, I'll, I'll talk to somebody, and like, one of the first things I say is like, okay, here's the deal, man. Like, I'm going to pray, we're going to agree, but, you know, beyond mouths, beyond words, like, your heart needs to be in this. Because there's a lot of people that will come up and they'll come and receive prayer and they'll have words and they'll say words, but their heart is in total disagreement with it and they wonder why that God never comes through. But many of us don't realize is that when our hearts are saying no and our mouths are saying yes and we're wondering where did my answered prayer go for the thing that came out of my mouth is that God is actually saying, I actually answered the prayer of your heart already. For example, men and women who have been totally closed off from relationships. We all know lots of them. We're all related to lots of those people too. We're like, I can never trust, you know, man, and I can never trust women or whatever. And then the next thing they'll say, like almost within a second is like, I want to be married. So their world is, and, and they'll go, you know, to pray and they'll be like, God, I want a spouse. God, I want to be married. God, I want to have all these things. But when in reality, their heart is said, God, protect me from all people who will hurt me. Their hearts have said, I don't want my heart to be hurt. And so my heart is going to remain closed. It's going to be, remain paranoid. It's going to be, be so uh, protected that I won't ever let anybody in. But then their mouth says, Lord, give me a spouse. And God's saying, I'm going to be obedient to what your heart is asking. So I'm not going to overrule your heart by what your mouth is saying. There are so many things that, again, that we don't, agree within our hearts that our mouths pray. And so we need to know that God made his word very clear. 
He didn't say, just say these words and you'll be saved. He said, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. He didn't say, trust in the Lord with all of your words. <laughs> Did it make any sense? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. He made it absolutely clear that all authority in prayer comes from the belief in your heart, not from the words of your mouth. If you know the story of the centurion that came to Jesus, and Jesus like, was like, holy cow, this guy's like, he's got it going on like with the faith. I haven't seen anybody like this in all of Israel. And then he just said, what you believe in your heart has already been done. They've been healed. They didn't like, all right, let's get five people. Let's all pray for like 40 minutes. Let's close our eyes, look like we're really focused, not thinking about what we posted on Facebook. Like, that doesn't happen. So question, do you believe that God trusts you? Since we ourselves will remove trust with others based on how they violate our trust, do you believe that you've lost God's trust? Do you believe there's an area of our life where like, man, I messed up. Man, it's just an all or nothing deal with trust. So I, God just must be so cautious with me. He must be so paranoid that I'm going to mess up. Do you believe that God always trusts you? It's one thing to say with my mouth, I believe God trusts me. And then another thing like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> like that. First time for everything. But I'm here to tell you that God always trusts you because trust is about the heart. Do you believe in your heart that he always trusts you? Regardless of your situation, here's a few ways to tell. Do you feel like you have to wait a day or two after you stumble in order to approach God with confidence? Do you remove yourself out of the running if you like stumble and like, well, there's a waiting period, a probation period for me before I can become connected back with God. Like, do you put yourself on probation when you mess up? If you do, then you're thinking that God has lost trust. If you are, you're thinking that God is keeping score and that, oh man, I need to earn my way back in. When we find ourselves performing for God in order to prove that we are trustworthy, then we are telling him that we believe that we have to earn his heart. Anytime we feel closer or more accepted by God as a result of a rule followed or a religious principle we practice, then we are guilty of believing that God doesn't always trust. I know people, and not to pick on any like alcohol or anything like that, but there's individuals that like, they have their rule, I don't do this, it like is their religion. Anybody know that? They're like their whole entire religious faith is all based upon I don't speed. Or like, I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. Cool, great, you know, I don't, I don't care. But they like, they want to make it all about that, you know? And if they were ever to like stumble at area, like, oh, you know, everything comes crashing down. You're like, what? It makes no sense. Because you're simply believing that God has put all of his chips on this one particular good behavior. And if you violate that, then you all crumble back to nothing. And any time that you believe that any action can change the nature of your relationship with God, we participate in the lie that God does not always trust. God always trusts you because his heart is always open to you. You guys doing good? Yeah. Sweet, let's keep going. Love always hopes. God always hopes. One of the most uh, vivid memories I have as a child, I, I have discovered I have a terrible memory these days. Camille and I were walking, she's like, remember when we did this? It's like, yeah, that was really good. And I don't remember me doing that at all. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I'm like patting myself on the back. That was really great. I'm like, mm. But I, I rem anybody remember like their first encounter with Disneyland or Disney World? Yes. Right? It's just one of those things. Man, so you guys know, like, I was, like, crazy obsessed with Michael Jordan. 
So one more embarrassing detail is like, I was totally obsessed with Chip and Dale. I don't know. One awkward thing was when I discovered that Chip and Dale is different from Chippendales, which... That was really weird. But I remember going to Disneyland. I remember walking into the toy store or like the, you know, merchandise store and seeing like walls of Chippendale, you know, like, and they're all there. And I'm like, and I'm like going to define them. And like, I thought they were real. Like these people dressed them in huge costumes. I was just totally amazed. But the lead up to that, I remember that I was just like so, a few things. Like I was always so excited to go to Disneyland or water parks or having summer come. And there'd be these things that like, I would just survive by thinking about, oh, I, got, I just got to make it through the today because I'm a day closer. It's probably like Mike and Ashley who are getting married in 99 days and how many hours? <laughs> but who's counting? Apparently you guys are. <laughs> you know, but one of those things is like, it, it like pulls you through your day. It pulls you through your week to have hope. It actually gives you strength for the challenge you have. And I had the, the hope of Disneyland to survive those like young years and those weeks leading up to it and many different things. But, you know, the challenge is that most people now think of hope as a dreamy fantasy that isn't certain but is nice to imagine. You have like terrible circumstances and they're always the one person that's like hopeful and they're like the most annoying person at that time. They're like, will you shut up already? Like, I just want to wallow, like stop it. And they hold out hope and, and, and you, you think they're being completely unrealistic. And these are people that are completely unaffected by their surroundings and they hold out hope for the sake of their dream. And then there's other variations of hope that we have, right? You mean, you buy a lotto ticket, I mean, you're like hoping, like, come on, I mean, $500 billion, I got this. You know, you buy like three tickets. Have you ever done that? You see like get really big, you're like, okay, I'll go buy a ticket. <laughs> you know, like people who buy lottery because they hope that they'll win the lottery. If you're in prison, like you're hoping that you get out early, you know? If you were their victim, you hope that they don't. I mean, I hoped I'd be in the NBA. I mean, it didn't work out that well. I mean, most of these things are not impossible. They're just not probable. But the problem with today's definition of a hope is that it's been reduced to wishing for something that might happen when there's no guarantee. That hoping has been reduced to wishing for something that might happen when there's no guarantee. Sometimes we relate hopeful people to ignorance, that they're not in check with the reality. And it's just a dream of what could take place, but it's not a picture of what will. There's something wrong, I'm sorry, there's nothing wrong with wishing a dream. I'm like the biggest dreamer like I know. I'm like riddled by dreams. Um, but when it takes the place of hoping, there's a big difference between dreaming and hoping. We're making a big mistake. I'm gonna give you some of those things. The first, is that the Bible describes hope in a very specific way. It's very unique and very consistent. Let me read you a few examples. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 2 through 5. Be prepared to explain the hope that you have in Christ, 1 Peter 3. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. 
But if God is love and love always hopes, then we have an issue with our understanding of hope, don't we? Because all those things had to do about his nature, about our salvation. That's how hope is described about his glory. We're not like dreaming about God's glory, are we? We're not like wishing that his glory would be, we're not like wishing that God is there. Like it's, we have a hope. What's the difference? Is that, well, like when we understand that, it makes really a weird sense when we say God always hopes by our definition because what would God ever hope for, right? What does God hope for? Doesn't he know the beginning from the end? I mean, you wouldn't like rewatch the Super Bowl this past year and hope for a different winner to win. You'd be like insane. But it makes no sense, but God created hope for a very specific purpose. Our entire faith is held together by hope. The purpose of hope is for it to be placed into truth. The entire purpose of hope is for it to be placed into truth. Hope must always be placed into truth. If it is placed in anything else besides truth, it will die. Let me explain further. On, to- on, on truth, there's a little tow hitch. Anybody have a truck, right? A little ball and, you know, thing. There's like a little tow hitch on truth. And on hope, we attach our hope to truth. Think of it as like a little hope rope, you know, like a little, one of the guys you're holding on. And, and that is what hope is designed for. It's designed to be attached to truth, and that is what is supposed to pull us. But we, unfortunately, can attach our hope to anything that we like. We can attach hope to our relationship. We can attach hope to money. We can attach hope to all these different things. And, and we can do that. There's nothing that stops us from placing hope because while we do that, it may feel like it satisfies us for the moment and it pulls us forward and it buoys us up. But eventually, if it's not truth, it's going to let us down. And when we get let down, we lose hope. Why? Because hope was never designed to be attached to that thing you attached it to. And without hope, you have no faith. Have you ever met somebody who has lost all hope? If you're hopeless in your life, you have no faith because it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. A little more. Women say that they've lost faith in men. I'm going to go back to that a few times tonight. What they really mean is that they tied their hope rope to a man who was never worthy of being pulled by it. When you lose faith in any Fill in the blank. It simply reveals that they were not ever worthy to be connected to your hope. Because hope has always been designed to be placed into truth. We say, well, I hope he changes. He's not going to change. <laughs> like, newsflash. You know, what you really want to say is like, I wish he would change. And here's a penny. Maybe there's a wishing well somewhere. Like, it, it's kind of that nature. But we choose to tie our hope to obvious lies and deceptions because they make us feel good and, and they tow us around and, and, and then we lose everything. And, and losing hope, here's what happens, is that losing hope reveals lies where you placed your hope. Losing hope in anything reveals where you had a lie that you attached your hope to. They weren't designed for your hope. God designed all hope to be placed into truth and nothing else. But sometimes what we'll do, here's, here's how we will, you know how we over-spiritualize things? We can over-spiritualize this. We can know, we can, we can see with our, our brains like, oh, this is a lie. This is, you know, this is not right. And we'll attach our hope there. And what we'll do is we'll label it an act of faith. I'm going to say that one more time. We, our minds, our wisdom and discernment, because remember the word says we have the mind of Christ. 
We have the fruit of the Spirit, meaning we have all the things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, that whole laundry. We have all that in full measure. So it's not like, well, I just didn't have the mind of Christ when that happened. Like, yeah, you did. But we, we will have a discernment and we'll turn the discernment off. And we will choose to attach our hope to a lie, a deception, something that we know. And what we'll do is, is we'll do that. And for us to justify that our minds have been violated in putting our hope there, we call it an act of faith. We call it an act of faith because it helps us feel better about something that hope was never meant for. It was never meant for that. And this is why this whole premise about hope being placed into truth And we know that all those scriptures on hope talk about who God is, his glory, our salvation. Those are pretty like set in stone things. We're not going to find that. We're not going to get to heaven like, where'd the glory go? Like, there's no glory? I thought there was glory. I mean, it's there, right? But this is the exact reason why God is grieved so much when people believe they can lose their salvation. There's one thing that grieves me about an earnest Christian is that they fear that they can lose their salvation. You can't have hope of your salvation if your salvation is a maybe. It's impossible to have the hope of your salvation if your salvation is a maybe. Amen? Why would, uh, I hate running. Anybody else hate running? God bless us. Would you, <laughs> would you ever run a marathon if you didn't know for sure there's going to be a finish line? You'd be the dumbest person in Sacramento. You would never even think about such a thing. You, would you even continue on if you knew that the finish line was a maybe? It depends on your splits. It depends on, you know, all these. We wouldn't even start it. But isn't it the same way? Like, our salvation is the hope assured for. Things we haven't seen, but hope assured for. God always hopes it means that we have something that's rock solid, our salvation that we can push forward to. It's our finish line. It's it's what helps us get through it. It's what pulls us through the challenges to know that we can place hope in truth. Now, there's all these other things about truth that we can place our hope to. And what that looks like is that no matter what happens, I know I'm a son or daughter. And we attach our hope there. We go through situations and we know, we trust God You are faithful because you commune with me. God, you will not allow this to be my demise. You will not allow my heart to go wayward when I put my trust and my faith in you and you alone. Give me discernment for this loser over here that is wanting my heart. (laughs) That's how it is. We don't say, I'm going to put all my hope in this loser and then when it doesn't work out, go back, God, why? He's just like, wrong direction, right? (laughs) I'm sorry. But if you're a Christian, you really believe, and and if you're a Christian and you don't believe that you're eternally secure, then you need to know something. You have no hope. If you don't know that you are eternally secure, then you have no hope. All you have is a wish and a dream for heaven. And a wish and a dream for heaven isn't going to make you endure this life. It just isn't. Everything in your life will waver because you, at your core, remain in a state of hopelessness because you don't know if there's a hope of heaven. And so what people typically do is they'll resort to fear. They'll resort to punishment. They will conjure up hell and brimstone and punishment and consequences and judgment, all these things. And I just want to know, when did hell get so much power over heaven in our hearts? When did hell get so much more motivating power over heaven in our hearts? So how does hope influence my life? And I'm going to wrap up with this. Is I have a hope that every day of my life, 
that I will be rewarded for my faithfulness. Every decision in my life that I will be rewarded for based on how I live life here. It's biblical. I used to say, oh, we don't want to do things we want to do because of the grace of response. I repented of that and it's not true. Grace, yes, yeah, salvation is a gift, but you know what? There's something called the bema seat of Christ where, it's, where we actually receive rewards for how we live. I don't know about you, but like it says that there's mansions in heaven. Like I kind of want like an ocean view. Like I want, I want like the good stuff when I get to heaven. And so I live life in the hope of knowing what I do today matters. What I do today matters in eternity. And so it, it guides me through my decisions. I live for another day that isn't here of this world. And so I think about God, man, this, this is a bummer. But you know, I'm going to choose. I'm going to take some chances. I'm going to like risk it because I believe that my stewarding of this life will result in a reward later. If you're not there, then you need to get there. Because it helps us think about every moment of our life where we know that God is going to give us rewards for how we live. It's totally different from salvation. You are saved. Totally. But there's also rewards that come out. And we like want to shy away from it because we think that it's not as Christianese or you know, whatever. I have the hope of this outcome. Salvation is a gift, but rewards are earned. The second thing is, I have hope in my potential. It's not like, oh, look at me, I'm like, you know, smart or whatever. No, it's not that. It's that Jesus said, you will do greater things than me. Do we believe that? We're like, oh, that's kind of a typo. I don't think they really meant to say that. <laughs> it, have we looked at the Greek for, farther enough in that? Like, you know, surely he didn't mean, I, that's truth that we can tie our hope to, is it not? When you believe that God really meant what he said, he wasn't like, oh, here's a little feel-good pat on the head. Maybe, like, you'll be in a better mood. Like, he wasn't, like, trying to, you know, appease us. He wasn't trying to, like, boost our egos. He was saying, literally, you will do greater things than I will in this world. Have we even comprehended that there are a billion people all on one website? I mean, you think of, like, the impact you could have in this world. When you think about how technology and different things that we get to live in and the fact that we have microphones, like Jesus like shouted really loud, like we just, when you think of all the ways that God has equipped us right now to have a greater impact and to do greater things than he did, like we have to live differently. So I have a hope that, gosh, Jesus, if you're in me, I'm not worried about me getting in the glory because you're in me. You know, we kind of like get past that like false humility. And then we're like, we say, okay, let's do amazing things in this world. Let's do amazing things in this life. Let it, let's take chances. Let's go bold. Let's go big. I love Jared Eilery, and I'm going to love on you for a second. So we're, on a, we're going to El Salvador, right? It's three in the morning on this flight. I don't know. We're going to Houston. I'm like doing one of these guys like in my airplane seat. I'm like hating life. <laughs> I can't sleep on planes. And I wake up and I turn over, and there's like at three in the morning, there's like a line for the bathroom in the airplane. There's like one, and maybe somebody's having issues, but there's like a line. And so Jared, I hear him say, so um, God wants you to know, and he's like totally giving this woman like this prophetic word, and you can see she's like, I just want to pee, man. Like, you know, what are you doing? But isn't that what I'm talking about? It'd be so easy to just go back and sleep on your neck pillow and just like, God will send the message another way, you know? <laughs> But when you have the hope that you will do greater things, that you have the potential to have the impact, it's not a guarantee. It just says it's available. It's not a guarantee. You didn't say, you, it's a guarantee you are, but it says, if you believe that you will, then I'm going to empower you too. 
I want to be surrounded by people who live that way. I want to be surrounded by people who stink and want to change the world. Do you? So those are the ways that hope for me drive me. I believe that my life matters. I believe, one, that he's given all of us amazing gifts to make a huge dent in this world. I have the band come up. And all this to say on hope is that, are we having a band tonight? I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I didn't think about that. I hope I didn't make a whole bunch of people really nervous. Like, okay, sweet. Is that we need to guard our hope. We're too quick to distribute hope. We're too quick to attach our hope in places that doesn't belong. And so we need to guard our hope. We need to actually guard, is it being attached to truth or is it being attached to lies? One of the greatest things about Christ's life is it's like laser focused on rooting out the lies you believe. It's like so nauseating how much, like, you know, it's like, can we get to another topic? You know, like, but it is so good because we have so many lies that we believe. And Christ's life is one of those things like it has to like, the house kind of gets burned down to like the foundation before it gets built up. And it's great. I know I'm plugging Christ's life here, but, but it's amazing when we discover the lies we believe, we also find where we have placed our hope. And we need to be on a relentless pursuit of truth because all of us want to have a sense of hope. All of us do. It's what helps us get through the days. It's, it's what helps us like survive like this challenging time in this challenging world. We need to know exactly what the Bible says and what it doesn't. I know we've been stuck on four verses for six months, you know. But it's important because if, if we're hearing the word of God from the wrong personality that we believe, it doesn't matter what the word says. Because we're going to hear it through that lie. And so that was the reason that we've been going through. We have one more night of this series left, but that's the reason we've been going through is we want to discover all the lies we believe about God's character. And so that then we can have a very proper and right place to place our trust and our hope. But when we don't do that, when we accept the things that everything happens for a reason, you know what happens? When we believe the lie that everything happens for a reason, then we begin to put our hope into cancer because we hope that cancer has a reason. We believe that we place hope into disease and death. We hope, oh God, I hope that you have a lesson for me in here. And God said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not truth. When we put hope into everything is his will, you start putting hope into divorce. You start putting hope into losing your job. You put hope in all these things, and God's like, I'm not in those things. When you put your hope into who I say I am and what my will is, and you know the difference between what isn't my will and who I am not, then you actually will find the first place in your the first time in your life where you can securely place your hope. Let's pray.